We're in Colossians chapter two, verses uh, chapter four, verses two through six. There's a printed message at both exits. You can grab one now or later if you like. I pray for um, this message to apply to every heart and life. There's an outline in your bulletin and. Um, All the printed and audio messages are on the church website as well. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves, or literally walk, is the Greek word there, with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as though with salt, so that you will know how to respond To each person. Well, if you saw the title of today's message before you showed up here, uh, Private Prayer Public Witness, and you came anyway, I congratulate you for your bravery because um, I think our text deals with two subjects that probably produce more guilt among Christians than any other subjects, namely prayer and witnessing. And if you feel like a failure in your prayer life and as a failure in your attempts to bear witness for Christ, welcome to the club. I think I am club president. I feel more like a failure in those areas than perhaps any other. But my aim today is not to increase your guilt. Guilt can motivate. I remember as a college student, guilt for failing as a witness motivated me to go get some training, but generally I find guilt to be a lousy motivator, and so I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. What I want to try to do is equip you uh, to help you with some practical uh, counsel on how to be more faithful in prayer and uh, how to bear witness more effectively. There's a connection between the two in that a private life of prayer is the foundation for our public uh, life of witness. And so Paul here very simply says in private, devote yourself to prayer in public, be a godly witness for Jesus Christ. Um, In private, he says we're to be persistent in watchful, thankful prayer in public We are to be wise in our conduct or our walk, and we are to be winsome in our words so that we can be effective witnesses for Christ. So first, let's look at the private side where Paul says, devote yourself to prayer. I want to read verses 2 through 4 again so you see where I'm coming from. God's word, not my word, is what really matters. He says, devote yourself to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which 
I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So Paul's telling us two things there. First of all, he's telling us how to pray, and then he's telling us what we should pray for. First, how to pray. Paul says three things. Pray persistently, pray watchfully, and pray thankfully. First, pray persistently. And that comes from the Greek word there that's translated, devote yourselves. It's often used in connection with prayer. For example, in Acts 1.14, the early church, the disciples just before Pentecost, it says, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And then after the day of Pentecost, we read of the early church in Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which would refer to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Later on in Acts 6, the apostles were in danger of getting entangled with helping the needy, waiting on tables, and so they declared, uh, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul says that we should be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and then devoted to prayer. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 6, in the parallel to our text here, verse 18, Paul uses the noun, not the verb, and he says that we are to pray with all perseverance, that's the word, Uh, and petition for all the saints. We see also Paul's devotion to prayer in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We are praying always for you. And then in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, that is, of their conversion, we have not ceased to pray for you. And here's what he prayed, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then in chapter 2, I think he's referring to his own prayer life when he says uh, that he wants them to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. So that struggle would indicate that persistence he had in prayer. And then when we get to chapter 4 and verse 12, we see that Epaphras, who was probably the founding uh, missionary of that church, he says he was always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. And then there's a well-known verse, a very short verse, um, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where Paul says, pray without ceasing. And that verse is often misunderstood. People think, Well, that's impossible. How can I pray 24-7 every second of every day? That's not what it means. Uh, The word was used of a hacking cough. And you know someone with a hacking cough, they, they don't cough all the time. They just keep coming back to it. It's frequent. There's intermission. And then it comes back again, then again, then again. And that's how our prayer life should be, that we should keep coming back to it over and over and over again. Uh, just as if we had a hacking cough. 
Jesus taught persistent prayer in two very humorous parables, one in Luke chapter 11. A guy and his family are in bed at midnight, and he hears banging on his front door. And he just ignores it at first, and it won't stop. So he finally says, go away, and it won't stop. And and it's a friend of his, and he's had some uh, unexpected guests drop in on him, and he doesn't have any bread, so he wants to borrow bread. And the guy keeps saying, go away, and the friend won't go away. So finally the guy gets up and gives him the bread just so he can go back to sleep. Uh, The other parable is in Luke 18, and it's the story of a widow And she's bugging this judge for legal action against her opponents. And he doesn't want to deal with her. And he keeps putting her off and putting her off. And she keeps bugging him until finally he goes, just to get her out of here, I'm going to give in to her request. And so he does. Now, the point of both parables is not that God is somehow reluctant to help us or that he doesn't want to give us aid. Uh, the point of the parables focuses on us, and that is we should keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. We should keep praying until we obtain the request that we're asking from the Lord. Um, God's time is not always our time. Uh, with regard to prayer for lost loved ones, you might wonder, well, is there a point where we ought to quit? I mean, you know, you pray for him for 20, 30, 40 years. Should you just give up? My take is don't quit until they're dead. Um, Just keep praying. And if God sees fit to answer, amen. Uh, There's a story in George Mueller where he began to pray for the salvation, pray daily for the salvation of five men in November of 1844. It took 18 months, and one of the men came to faith. Mueller kept praying. After five more years, the second man came to faith. Then, after six more years, the third man finally got saved. And at the time that Mueller mentioned this story in a sermon that he was delivering, he had been praying daily for the salvation of the last two men now for 36 years. And... uh, Finally, Mueller died in 1897. He was 95 years old, I believe, or 93. I can't remember. He was up there. Anyway, just before he died, 53 years after he started praying, the fourth man got saved. And then a few years after he died, the other man got saved. So you don't know how God's going to work, and I cannot begin to match Mueller's faithfulness in praying that doggedly for someone daily for all those years, but he is an encouragement to what Paul is saying here. Pray persistently. Secondly, Paul says pray watchfully. Uh, The word keeping alert means to be watchful. Um, It's often used in the context of our adversary, the devil. Uh, after urging us in 1 Peter 5, 7 to cast all our anxieties on the Lord because he cares for us, Peter adds this in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, uh, be on the alert, your adversary the devil prowls about or around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Um, Jesus frequently tells us to be on the alert about his second coming. Uh, Be watching for it. 
in the garden just before he got arrested, you know, Peter, James, and John, he took them aside and he told them in Matthew 26, 41, keep watching, that's the same word, keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we have an enemy. We got the flesh, but we also have the devil who is a roaring lion. And I guarantee you, if it came on the news that a lion had escaped in Flagstaff and he was last seen in the vicinity of South Beaver Street, as you left from church to go to your car, you would be very watchful. You would be looking around and trying to say, where is he? And uh, you would be very careful. Well, the truth is there is a, a dangerous lion on the loose in Flagstaff And that adversary, the devil, should keep us watchful in our prayer life. Um, And then thirdly, Paul says, uh, pray thankfully. Pray thankfully. Uh, You might wonder, well, what's the connection between being on the alert and, and thanksgiving? It seems to me, if you're not thankful, then you're grumbling. And when you're grumbling, you're vulnerable to the enemy. Remember Israel in the wilderness. God laid them low because they were grumblers. And so thankfulness is what keeps us watchful as we encounter various trials. Um, Maybe you've lost your job and you got a pile of bills. Or maybe uh, your teenager's rebelling and running with the wrong crowd. Or maybe the doctor has just diagnosed you with a serious illness or There's all sorts of problems and trials that we all encounter in this life. It takes faith in God to pray thankfully, to really say, Lord, I don't understand what's going on, but I thank you for this trial. I know it's not too difficult for you. I lean on you. I trust in you. I know that you promised to work it together for my good, and you'll strengthen my faith. And so I, I ask you, Lord, to answer for your glory that you would be glorified through this. And so that's how Paul says we're to pray. We're to pray persistently. We are to be on the alert, to be watchful, and we are to be thankful. Now, what do we pray for? Well, Paul shows that we are to pray for God's kingdom to expand through the spread of the gospel. Um, He goes on to ask prayer for himself. Now, think about the circumstances. Paul is in prison And if you sent out a prayer letter when you're in prison, what would you ask for? Number one, pray that I'll get out of here soon. There's really not much of a mention of that uh, at all, unless it's hinted at when he just says, for which I have also been imprisoned. Um, But in effect, what Paul prays here is, Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. He says this in verses 3 and 4. Praying at the same time for us as well, here's what he wants prayer for, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. John Piper frequently points out that one of the reasons our prayer life fails is that we have turned prayer into what he calls an intercom to call for refreshments from the butler rather than a walkie-talkie in a wartime situation. 
In other words, we're, we're always bringing our needs for, oh, I need this, I need that, make me happy here, provide this little thing, and we forget we're engaged in a spiritual battle, and prayer is the walkie-talkie to call in uh, the troops. He puts it like this. He says, here's one way to picture what is going on here. Paul and Timothy and Aristarchus and Epaphras are a unique team of stormtroopers in the spiritual battle to recapture the hearts of men for God. They've made a strike at the enemy lines and met a tremendous counterforce. Paul and Aristarchus are prisoners of war, and it looks as though the enemy has a tactical victory in his pocket. But Paul manages to smuggle a letter out of the prison camp to some fellow soldiers stationed to the rear. That's the Colossians. And in the letter, he asked them to get on their walkie-talkie and to call in, uh, call command headquarters and ask headquarters to fire a missile that will blast open a door in the prison wall and in the enemy's front line so that Paul and his squad can get on with their mission to release people from the power of Satan and bring them to God. So that's the picture here. And praying for God's kingdom to expand involves um, three things again, praying for the workers, praying for open doors, and then praying for gospel clarity. First of all, Paul says, pray for the workers, pray for us. And that would include workers who are out on the front lines, engaged full-time in spreading the gospel, our our missionaries and um, pastors and those kinds of people. But I think it goes beyond that. We all, as the body of Christ, are workers for the Lord. And so we are to pray for one another, to pray for uh, workers. And what should we pray? Well, let's pray that we don't get distracted and turn prayer into this intercom to bring refreshments, but that we'll all keep an eternal perspective. As we go out into the world, every one of you are missionaries for the Lord, and you're in a field that I'm not in. You have a circle of people that I don't run in, and you know them, and I don't. And so that's your mission field, and we should pray for each other that, that we'll have these opportunities. If you don't already have one, I encourage you, get a church directory and, and pray through the people in the directory. You say, well, what do I pray for them? Well, among other things, pray that God will give them an open door for the gospel and that they'll make it clear that they'll have opportunities. Um, if you're not on it, check the thing on the welcome slip about I'd like to be on the church email list. And every week, Linda sends out prayer requests for people in our body, for missionaries like Barney in Nepal or whoever. And when those requests come up, we can stop right now and wherever you're at, and you read your email and say, hey, Lord, uh, I pray for my brother or sister there. So pray for the workers, then pray for open doors for the gospel. You know, someone as gifted as Paul, you would think he could make his own doors open, but he knows he can't. It's a God thing when doors for the gospel open. And so Paul wasn't into using clever methods or, you know, the latest gimmicks or salesmanship techniques or whatever to gain an opening. He prayed, Lord, would you open the doors? Open the doors. And God has to open the door for witness, but then, as I'll point out in a few minutes again, we need to walk through the door when he does. But we should be praying for these open doors. 
And uh, when God opens the door, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And so we can say, wow, here's an opportunity. We, we've been praying for it. We're ready for it. We speak to the other person. And so one thing to be praying for all of us is that God would open the door in this city for us to speak a word about Christ. And then Paul says, pray for clarity um, in presenting the gospel. He says that, that I might make it clear in the way that I uh, ought to speak. That is an amazing prayer request. Paul wrote 13 New Testament letters, <laughs> inspired letters, including the greatest presentation of the gospel ever, the, the book of Romans. Paul wrote that, and here he is saying, would you guys please pray that when I present the gospel, I'd be clear? You go, huh? <laughs> I mean, I feel like, a, you know, like I got my foot in my mouth sometimes when I uh, try to share. And here's Paul asking for prayer for clarity. He refers to it here as the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Now, he doesn't mean the gospel is mysterious or hard to understand. In the New Testament, mystery refers to a truth that previously was not revealed and now has been revealed. So it's a God thing. In other words, God has to open minds and hearts to the gospel. People, the natural man, cannot get it. They cannot understand the gospel by human wisdom. And the gospel, or the the mystery of Christ, refers to the truth that salvation previously, in the previous ages, was made known to the Jews exclusively, except for a few Gentiles here and there in the Old Testament. And now it's available to the Gentiles, and they, amazingly, are on equal footing with the Jews in the church, as we've seen in Colossians 3. The gospel, the good news, begins with bad news. And I think sometimes we fail in sharing the gospel because we don't share the bad news. If you, be, if you begin with, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, most people say, hey, thanks for reminding me. You know, I'm a pretty good person, and uh, I, I appreciate that encouragement. Thanks. But they don't see their need. They need to realize the bad news. We're all sinners. We all are alienated from the holy God because of our sin. And God can't just brush away our sin because he is holy and he is just. And he's declared that the penalty for our sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. And until a person feels the bad news, they can't receive the good news. Now, what people will do when you tell them the bad news is they'll think, well, yeah, that's all true. But I'm a good person. And I've got all my good works that are going to outweigh the bad works. And so, yeah, it's bad news. But that's for the really, really bad people. I'm a good person. And so they have to understand, no, you're not good enough. You have to be perfect. The good news is that what we cannot do, God did. In love, he sent his own son, who perfectly obeyed him his entire life. He gave his life on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He paid the debt, in other words, that we owe. And God raised Jesus from the dead to authenticate 
that his death was satisfactory. And now the good news is God offers a full pardon and forgiveness of all sins to any sinner who will simply believe in Jesus, receive it by faith alone. And uh, that is the greatest news, and that's the message we, we have to share. So praying for God's kingdom to expand through the gospel is um, should be our focus. And I say, well, does that mean I can't pray for my personal needs? No, of course not. In the Lord's Prayer, you'll remember, he began, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then, after that, he said, um, you know, you can pray for your daily bread. You can pray for forgiveness of sins, personal relationships. You can pray for strength against temptation, that is, personal holiness, But first, before we bring all those needs to God in prayer, the burden of our hearts should be, Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I encourage you, pray persistently, pray watchfully, pray thankfully. And what do you pray for? Pray for Christian workers, pray for open doors for the gospel, pray for clarity as people share the gospel and that the Spirit of God would take that and apply it to the hearts of people. So, private prayer, then, is the foundation for public witness. Or, to put it another way, before you go out and talk to people about God, talk to God about people. Go to the Lord, say, Lord, give me these opportunities, and then you'll be ready. So then the second thing is, we've got to talk to people, and that's dealing with witness. Paul says, in public, be a godly witness for Jesus Christ. And There are two parts to that, your walk and your words. Regarding your walk, a godly walk then is the basis or the foundation for effective witness. Verse 5, Paul says, conduct yourselves, literally walk with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. That word walk is a favorite metaphor of Paul for the Christian life. In Colossians 1, 9 and 10, he prayed that you may be filled with, With the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, here he's telling us to walk in wisdom, wisdom and understanding, and then he adds, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then in Colossians 2.6, he told us, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, So, walk in him. It's a theme in Ephesians 2 um, that you see. It's in Ephesians 2, it's in Ephesians 4. Uh, Paul there repeats in Ephesians 5 that theme of walking. To walk with wisdom toward outsiders means you're basing your life on the truth, the principles of God's word, and the wisdom that's found there. In the Old Testament, wisdom comes from the Hebrew word for skill. And it pictures a carpenter who can take some rough lumber and turn it into a beautiful piece of furniture. That takes skill. Well, wisdom spiritually means we take the rough life that we all have because of our sins and apply God's wisdom and and skill, and we produce a life of beauty that brings honor and glory to our Lord and Savior. Uh, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Or in Colossians 2.3, Paul says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then you remember in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul exhorted us, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So wisdom comes from fearing the Lord, from knowing uh, Christ, and then letting Christ's word richly dwell in us uh, to change our hearts, change our lives. So to walk with wisdom toward outsiders means we're walking in line with God's word, and those who are not Christians are going to notice. They're going to say, there's something different about you. There's something different. And that's when we have the opportunity to tell them. So our walk with wisdom gives us the platform for our words uh, that will tell about the Savior. Part of your godly walk, Paul says, is making the most of the opportunity. Um, Literally in the Greek text, it means buying back the opportunity. Or to put it as I've already said, when God opens the door, you're ready. Walk through it. That kind of quickness to respond to the situation. Some of you ladies shop for sales. And maybe you see something you've been looking for in the paper or online. And you go to the store and there's a sale table and there's one of them left. And there's ladies all around and you grab it because that's what you're looking for. You're ready for it. And you, you buy up the opportunity. Or say a businessman and he's been looking for a good investment and he's uh, reading the Wall Street Journal and he sees it. And immediately he's on the phone to grab it before uh, the price goes up or the opportunity goes by. That's the picture here. I think we see an illustration of it in the life of our Lord in John 4. You remember the story of the woman at the well. The disciples go into town to buy lunch Jesus sits down by the well, and here comes this woman, uh, rather uh, checkered past. And uh, in that society, no man would talk to her. But Jesus sees this opportunity. And so he begins to tell her about the living water that only he can give. And the disciples come back, and they're a little bit nonplussed at the situation. Like, what's he doing talking to her? Why, why, Why is he doing this? It was totally culturally inappropriate and and uh they're kind of come on rabbi eat your lunch here's your lunch you know it's your your big mac's gonna get cold hurry eat your lunch and let's get on with this journey and jesus uses the opportunity to tell them a lesson in a harvest mindset he says lift up your eyes and see the fields are white to harvest as all of the people are streaming out from the city to meet jesus And he spends three days there telling them about eternal life. He saw the opportunity. The disciples were focused on, eat your lunch and let's get on the road. You know, we need a, we got a trip to make. And Jesus sets all that aside and says, here's an opportunity for eternity. Let's buy it up. And that's the mindset. And I confess so often, I am so focused on my thing I got to do. You know, I'm busy. I got to do this, got to do that. And I, I'm focused on my schedule and miss the opportunities for eternity. And 
Jesus here is teaching us, Paul is teaching us as well, um, buy up those opportunities. So the foundation then for buying up opportunities for witness is prayer for God to open the door and pray for those gospel opportunities. And when you see them, you'll be ready to grab it before it passes. That's the idea. If you don't do it, out here on the book table is a little book called 8 to 15, Pick it up and read it, and he tells you to make a list of 8 to 15 people that you rub shoulders with every day, people that need Christ, and begin to pray for them. It's an easy application of the message. You begin to pray for them. Pray for opportunities. Pray that God will open the door. And then, as he does, you go through the door. Uh, Then, in addition to um, uh, those opportunities and and our walk, Paul says, winsome words then are the means for effective witness. This is verse 6. He says, let your speech uh, always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So again, Paul is saying three things. Be gracious, be interesting, and be sensitive. First, gracious. Now, what does that mean? Well, in light of Paul's emphasis on the gospel of grace... I think he means that our presentation of the gospel should make the grace of God clear. And that's one of the main needs because, as I said, virtually every person you're going to talk to about Jesus is going to say, well, I'm a good enough person to get into heaven. They think it's a thing of works. Just improve your life, clean up a few rough edges, and you're good to go. And you've got to get through to them. No, you're not. It's all of grace. It is undeserved favor. God saves sinners, not good people. So you've got to make that message of grace really, really plain. Um, Especially, by the way, with Roman Catholic people, because they're taught that you have to add to God's grace all your good works, and finally, you might be good enough to get into heaven. Uh, No, it's by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Uh, I think there's a second idea, though, and maybe it's ambiguous here. And that is we should speak graciously to people. In other words, never talk down to them. You know what? They're sinners. Yeah, so are you. And apart from God's grace, we'd all be lost. And so you're not coming down as a pretty good person to a really miserable wretch. No, Uh, somebody said witnessing is one beggar telling another beggar where there's free bread. You know, we're all in need of God's grace. And so you speak kindly to other people and don't judge them. Uh, Apart from God's grace, you might be worse than they are. So first, be gracious, then be interesting. Paul says, let your speech always be seasoned with salt. Now, he doesn't mean use salty language, as guys when I was in the Coast Guard used to do. Um, What he means is, There's two things about salt. Mike mentioned them in our worship time. One is salt was used as a preservative to keep things pure. And so I think that that Paul means make sure your speech is pure. You know, you don't want to do anything that would defile. And uh, you ought to show people whose lives are defiled by sin how they can be pure through, through Christ. But then the second use of salt, as we still use it today, is as a table spice to make food tastier. And I think he means don't bore people. Um, 
make it interesting. Present the gospel in a way that they want more. And you see Jesus doing this. You want some living water? Huh? Well, this water here. No, no, no. no. I'm talking about water that you'll never thirst again. See how he leads that woman into a, a discussion there of spiritual things. I would encourage you, learn some helpful illustrations. Uh, one illustration, again, people, if you say you need to believe in Jesus, they're going to say, yeah, yeah, I've always believed in Jesus. And it's obvious they don't believe in Jesus. How do you get it across to them? Well, you can use the illustration of an airplane. Do you believe a plane will fly? Yeah. There you are standing on the tarmac saying, I believe that baby will fly. No, you don't believe it. The way you believe it is you get on board. That's when you believe that thing will fly, is when you get on board. You commit your destiny to that plane. Believing in Jesus means you commit your eternal destiny, not to your good works, but to what Christ did on the cross for you. So you can use illustrations. There are many, many others you can use. And then Paul says, not only be gracious and be interesting, but be sensitive. He says, you should know how you should respond to each person. Now, I think it's helpful to learn a memorized plan of salvation, maybe the EE approach or way of the master or one of those. That's helpful, but you got to be careful because everybody's different. You might have somebody who is under a load of guilt, and if you share the law with them, you're going to just put them under further. They need grace. Or more likely, you're going to find people who have no guilt at all. They think, I'm a good guy. I'm good enough to get into heaven. They need to hear a dose of the law. No, no, you have sinned. You've fallen short of God's glory. So you have to tailor it to each person. I encourage you, study the witnessing encounters of Jesus in the Gospels, and you will find he never used the same approach twice. Generally, though, Generally, um, if a person was a proud Pharisee, he confronted their sin. If a person was broken, like the woman at the well, he, he let her know she was a sinner when he said, go call your husband, but he dealt with her with grace. And that's a good rule of thumb. So pray for wisdom as you speak so that you'll know how to respond to each person's needs. Many years ago, the China Inland Mission discovered that the number and the spiritual strength of the converts who were at one of the mission stations was far beyond what anybody expected or how they could explain it, humanly speaking. And uh, they didn't know why that was until one time Hudson Taylor was speaking in England. He was the founder of the China Inland Mission. He was back in England, he spoke. At the end of the message, a man came up to talk to him, and uh, he began to ask him questions, and it came out that he had very detailed knowledge of this particular mission station. And Taylor asked him, how is it that you're so conversant with what's going on at that station? And the man said, well, for four years, he said, uh, I have corresponded with my missionary friend there, And he has sent me the names of all of the inquirers and the converts. And I've daily taken all of those to the Lord in prayer. And the light went on and Taylor went, ah, that explains what's going on 
in that station. The daily specific prevailing prayer of that faithful man had brought eternal fruit halfway around the world in China for God's glory. And so God wants us to prevail in prayer with him concerning his plan of salvation for all people, people here in Flagstaff and people around the world. So Paul says in private, devote yourself to prayer. Pray persistently, pray watchfully, pray thankfully. What do you pray for? Pray for the workers, pray for open doors, pray for clarity as the message goes out. And then in public, your godly walk is the basis for your witness. You should be showing the the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And then uh, winsome words, words that are gracious, words that are interesting, and words that are sensitive are the means for effective witness. So I hope, again, I've not put you under a bigger pile about prayer and witnessing, but rather that you say, you know, by God's grace, I'm going to give this a go. Maybe I can improve. Maybe I can try it. And my prayer is that this church, we would see many, many coming to know Jesus Christ through our witness in this community. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his humility and saying, I need prayer for open doors. I need prayer for clarity. Uh, Elsewhere, he says, I need prayer for boldness. I wouldn't think Paul would need that, but he asked for it. And Lord, we certainly uh, need prayer. We need strength for our witness in this community. We pray for each one here in our respective mission fields that you would give us open doors and that we would be quick and ready to buy up the opportunities. I pray for our missionaries. They are in some difficult places, some with Muslim people uh, in difficult spots around the globe, that you would open doors and that they would be ready and gracious and sensitive, but direct and clear in presenting the good news of Christ. And Lord, we ask it all so that your kingdom may come, your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.